Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this time of worship. And uh, it's just it's good to be together in the house of the Lord as we were worshiping. I just was reminded of probably one of the many reasons God exhorts us to not forsake the assembling together, to not neglect coming together as a church. Is You're probably like me. Uh, some Sundays you show up and you had a tough week. And you're like, man, it was a difficult journey uh, this week to follow Jesus. And uh, you get among God's people. And you're surrounded by worship. And doesn't it kind of just lift you up? Helps you focus. And you leave with a bounce in your step. You, you leave with the reminder, it's going to be okay. Because He does reign. And so, I just uh, appreciate you as a body. And, and uh, I hope you appreciate each other. Um, and all that you bring as you and I come to worship. And so... Um, as I was uh, thinking and reading through um, the text over the week, um, I thought of my daughter Angela. And if you've had a child go to college, who, who's in that season of life where you have a child in college or had one? Um, I don't like it. Uh, I miss my daughter. I had her home for Easter. It's kind of like teasing me, like, I'm your daughter, see ya. You know? um, but I, there is something about releasing her to an education system that makes me really nervous. Um, there's, there's things I find myself continually saying to her, warning her about, uh, because I want her to follow Jesus and to grow to love Him. And I realize that uh, she's at a difficult time. Uh, there's a lot of stuff being thrown at her, and I'm not there. Not that I'm the answer, but you, as a dad, you can kind of help protect your children. Um, and so I was reading this text and thinking, that's why John wrote this. That's why he wrote First John. He wrote it to his children in the faith because he cared about them. And he loved them and he, wa- he wanted to warn them. And he wanted them to follow Jesus. And so we're going to be beginning a series through this book, 1 John. It's in the New Testament right near the end, a couple books before the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We're going to begin. I want to give you a little background this morning because the background is incredibly important to this letter. And um, so we're going to be looking at that a little bit. Um, I want to read the text, and we're going to ask God to teach us. And so I'm going to read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. What was from the beginning, what we heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. We have seen, and we bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Let's pray. Lord, if these weren't Your words, our time studying them would have very little value. But they are. Your written word, your your words to us from the heart of a good, good father. Lord, we want to learn them. We want to hear your heartbeat as we study. And so God, I pray through this series and certainly this morning, you'd help us to learn that we are overcomers in you. And Lord, we continually grow in the assurance of your love and the redemption we have in your name. So open our eyes to see, open our heart to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
some background about this book. 1 John. It's a small letter, a small epistle, you could say. John, this author, wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. He also wrote this letter, 1 John, and you're going to find out after it. There's a 2 John and there's a 3 John. Those are a little bit shorter. John is one of the original 12 who followed Jesus. He was the son of Zebedee, uh, we know. Jesus called him one of the sons of thunder. Kind of had a little uh, short temper, short fuse, you could say. And uh, Jesus gave him a nickname. And that's not probably the most endearing nickname. Um, but one of the sons of thunder. Uh, he was one of the inner circle, you could say, of disciples. Um, it seemed him and uh, two other disciples were the closest to Jesus. And I would submit to you, he was maybe even the closest. We find him being the only one at the cross. We find him being the one leaning against Jesus in the upper room. In the upper room, you had Judas who was lost, you had Peter who was limping, but you had John who was leaning. It seemed to be the posture of his life. He leaned heavily upon Jesus. It's, he had the most intimate, he had the most unique perspective and eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus. There's something special about John's relationship and friendship with Jesus. This book, although it's called a letter, really not a letter in the sense it really has no proper introduction like some of the other epistles. It's not addressed to one person. It's not really addressed to a specific church that's mentioned. But although it's not specifically addressed, it certainly is one of the most intensely personal letters. So much so, John doesn't even mention his name to his hearers. It'd be like if you wrote a letter to your child in college if I wrote a letter, Angela, I wouldn't even need to sign my name. Angela would know my writing. She knows me well enough to know. There goes Dad again. You know, that type of thing. And so I, it's an intensely personal letter, as you're going to find out. So it doesn't have that sense of a, I guess, proper introduction, you could call it. It was written about 85 to 95 A.D., which, because of that, makes John writing this is kind of a later season of his life. And so I kind of picture him, and maybe we could all picture him, sitting at a table with a quill and a piece of parchment. And he looks back over this life he's lived with Jesus. And an amazing three years he spent with him, bodily on earth. He reminisces about the rise, probably, and spread of Christianity all through Europe. And now, at this late season of his life, he speaks with great authority, with influence, because... Probably at this point, he's the only one of those apostles living. And so this letter would come with great authority and influence. Now who did he address specifically? Important again. The Gospel of John seems to be writing to a people, and we're going to look at that in a minute, who are not yet converted. The, the Gospel went out to those who weren't yet in a relationship with Christ. Didn't necessarily even know he was the Messiah. Didn't know much about the life of Jesus but this letter seems to have a different community, different audience. Several verses point to the fact that he is talking to people who are in the faith, who've come to faith in Christ. Probably many babies in Christ are the recipients of this. And last week when we were at the pack and Easter service, there were several people's hands went up throughout the gathering there of those who wanted to give their life to Jesus Christ. That's exciting. And so if that's one of you and you're here, this is a great study. I mean, this is like written, written right to you. 
But it really is written to all of us because throughout my years as youth pastor and pastor, one thing that has come up over and over and over in conversations is there's a lot of believers who've been believers for years who lack assurance. They're like, can I lose my salvation? Or if I'm a jerk one day, does God love me less than if I kind of pull off a decent day the next day? And they lack assurance of what it means to be a child of God and the assurance of salvation. That's one of the reasons John wrote the book. And so no matter where you're at in the faith, 1 John's going to be a blessing to you and I. And so you and I want to follow along. Now, some people believe, and there's some validity to this, that if you read Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the situation resonates with John's letters. In other words, these letters, specifically 1 John, could have been written to the people, church in Ephesus. But we don't really read that specifically mentioned. But there's some legitimate, I guess, legitimate argument for it. Um, but we're taking it, it's written to us. <laughs> um, God's word is timeless in that. But as you and I read this letter, which is, again, probably written, majority written to Christians, probably many young ones. But there's also another part of the community that John addresses here. And again, this is important regarding context. It appears an intellectual, I guess, or spiritually elite group had arisen. This little group of so-called Christians was claiming that they had some kind of superior anointing from God. They were super Christians, they said, with super knowledge, and that ordinary Christians did not have. They had discovered, they say, something new. Now, this breakaway group had a name. Now, it may not have the actual name right away, but certainly got it soon afterwards. And the name of this group became known as Docetists, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-T-S, Docetists. And Docetists really was an early form of Gnosticism, and maybe you're a little more familiar with that name. And the reason I'm bringing it up is that it's important to know what they believe, because then you see why John wrote several things he did. Docetists comes from the Greek word dosio, which means I think, I seem, and I appear. It has that definition. In other words, they taught concerning the person of Jesus Christ, that Christ as he came to earth... He only appeared to be a man. It seemed he was a man, but he wasn't really a man. They began to teach that he was not truly human. He was not truly physical. Now the Gnosticists later developed this in the second century. It was interesting. Gnosis, incidentally, means knowledge. And they believed that they had a superior knowledge to other people, other Christians. Gnostics taught, along with some of the Docetists, that it was, a ba- it was at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ when he went into the waters that the dove came down that then the Spirit of Christ descended on him and that same Christ Spirit left him before the crucifixion. Now, it's important we understand the implications of that. That means, according to this, that there was really no incarnation of the Savior. The docetists and Gnosticists would disagree with John 1.1 that said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man. Gnostics would not agree with that. Docetists wouldn't agree with that. They wouldn't agree with Colossians 1, which said, In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. They would disagree with that. John and Paul were also writing against docetism and Gnosticism in this sense. And it's really kind of a form of dualism. It means that they reckoned the material things of the universe, all things that were material, 
was evil. Everything that you could see, everything that you could touch, notice John's words are specific because of that, anything you could see, anything you could touch, your very flesh and body was evil. The only thing was good was in the spiritual realm and the spirit of man. In their mind, then, it was unthinkable that Christ could come in the flesh because in their mind, everything you could see and touch was intrinsically evil. Do you know what that means? It means that what they were saying is because Christ was not a real man, that whenever we read about Him being weary, wanting something to drink, sleeping, according to them, He was acting. Because after all, He wasn't a real man. Right? He had a facade. He wasn't really tired. He was faking it. He was, he was not a real man. He was a spirit. He only appeared to be a man. And so they run into some real problems on a lot of fronts. But to me, the fatal implication of this is that when Christ went to the cross, and as they say, the Christ spirit ascended from him back to God, it was not the Son of God who died there. Christ, God's Son, did not die on the cross is what they say. And because of that, he did not die as a substitute for sinners, and because of that, all men are lost if you subscribe to this heresy. There are more implications of this heresy, but the bottom line that John is highlighting is that the docetists did not rightly think of Christ. And this was really the doctrinal test. How do you know you're in the faith? How did these believers know whether the group that left them, which we'll read about later, were the correct ones? How did they know whether the truth, that they had the whole truth and nothing but the truth, how did they know that? You see, these docetists preached Christ. They looked and sounded like Christians, but that's John's point. It's actually Paul's point in several letters. It was even Christ's point in prophecy. The Christ that they preached was of their own making. It was not the true Christ. And so let's continue to study this. It's the context of John's writing, and we're going to revisit this a couple more times. But what's the whole theme of this message that he writes? What's the whole point of the book of 1 John? I've kind of hit on it a little bit, but I wanted to read John 20 from the Gospel. John 20, verse 30. And again, note the difference. John says, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in his book. But these have been written. Why? Why did John write this Gospel? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's an evangelistic emphasis in the Gospel of John. But why was 1 John written? He answers his question in 1 John 5.13. He says, these things I have written. What things? John, what, what, what are you writing in 1 John? I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. John's writing for assurance purposes. Whereas the Gospel of John was written more towards those who needed to believe in Christ, 1 John's written to those who had, but they need the assurance of what it meant to follow Jesus. And 1 John is a message for today, and that is this, there are certainties. You can be certain. You can know. And 1 John tells us the fundamentals of the faith and encourages you and I to embrace the basics of Bible truth. The beginning verses show that John declares that a Christian can know certainties of the gospel and be assured of personal salvation. James Montgomery Boyce, I appreciated his words here, and so I'm borrowing from him. He says, Gnosticism produced a type of philosophical religion that was divorced from concrete history. For concrete history tells us that Jesus was born as a man in Bethlehem's manger. He came to live as a man among men, and while he was the Son of God and the Christ of God, he was a man. 
Otherwise, he could not have been the Savior of the world. And there is a lesson, if there ever is one, for our modern age, Boyce goes on to say. And that is, if we, like the docesists, try to adapt the Christian message to be acceptable to our modern society, the message itself will eventually become irrelevant when the values and philosophies of society change. And I've heard it many times say, we need to make the gospel relevant. Now, I certainly believe we need to take the gospel, we need to go to where people are at, but my brothers and sisters, the gospel is relevant. We don't make it relevant. It already is. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We don't need to change the message to fit society. It's already relevant. It's a revelation of God that can change a life. And he talks about this life. Jesus Christ being the word of life and the life that gives life. This word of life is described. Well, how it's described, he says, that which was from the beginning. It kind of, these words really do tie back into the Gospel of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Refers to Him as the Word. It's this illusion, it's kind of this, again, connection to what He'd written before. Now the language here speaks to this Word of life as the incarnate in Jesus Christ. And I think this is so important because we need to maintain and realize our faith must be in the pre-existent Christ. As a pre-existent one, Christ is at the center of Christianity and certainly at the center of John's epistle. Do you believe in the pre-existent Christ? You'd be surprised how many people, A, don't know, or have been deceived by many voices around them. The Gnostics did not believe it. Again, the Docetists believed that the Spirit of Christ fell upon him, the man Jesus, at his baptism in the Jordan, but it left him before he was crucified on the cross. But the man Jesus who was born to Bethlehem wasn't really that Christ in and of himself, the docetists would say. But he is. He is the pre-existent Son of God. And this is important to realize because our faith is not just a historic one, although it is. But it's also a faith in an internal faith in an eternal God. The pre-existent one. Mormons would say, hey, we believe the Bible, but we believe our Mormon Bible too. It's a new revelation added to the Bible. I would say, we don't need your book. We already got the complete revelation in Jesus Christ, the pre-existent one. Pastor Russell and Judge Rutherford, the founders of Jehovah's Witnesses, would say, you know what, you need to get the green book, the studies in the scriptures. But we say, we don't need any of those. We have the complete revelation of God. That goes back to the beginning. The one who was with God before the world began. In other words, our faith is founded on the pre-existent one. As John writes, what was from the beginning. And he goes on to say, the word of license described is that which we've heard. We, we had actual first-hand hearing of the message. Remember that uh, last week when we took a walk with a couple of guys? They had a first-hand hearing as well. John's saying we heard it from his mouth. We didn't pop in a DVD. We heard him. We heard him speak it. That's pretty reliable witness. It's awesome privilege, too, they had. But he goes on to describe the word of life as described as that which we have seen. Once again, with the context being docetism, and they believing that all things were intrinsically evil, and that everything you could see, touch, hear, was evil, these words are very specific. John's writing intentionally to combat that. He wants his hearers to understand, this Jesus I'm talking about, first of all, I heard him. 
The second of all, he says, I've seen him. It's used to reinforce the claim that the proclamation of the word of life comes from one who was an eyewitness. We are talking direct personal acquaintance. In every way possible, John is stressing that the eternal and heavenly, the divine, has made himself known historically. So why does he stress this? Well, 1 John 2.22, I'm just going to give you a couple of references, there's more. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Even gets harsher language. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. If you were to go to the next book, little letter of 2 John, verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, these who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver. This is the Antichrist. And so he's combating these deceivers. He's saying, this Jesus, I heard him. I saw him personally. I know him. And what does that tell us? You see, the foundation of your faith and my faith is the historical. We believe in a historical Christ. It's not some myth made up. And although the unbelieving world can try to do whatever they want, the historical facts are that, historical facts. We have historical faith. And the author of our faith is a physical reality. And that's what John's trying to hammer home here. But he says, not only that, the word of life is something we've looked at. Now, of the Greek words, there does not really seem to be a, a whole lot of difference between the words he used for looked at and the ones he um, uses for seen. But there is a nuance of tense that's different. And that simply is that, that which he's seen, I saw Jesus, but looked at has a tense of the way John the Baptist used the word beheld. Behold the Lamb of God. It's, it's a continual tense. In other words, I've seen him, but now I look at him, and even now continually behold him. And isn't that really what we do in worship, what we're doing for all of eternity, beholding Christ? And that's kind of where John's going with it. I've seen him, but now I continue to look at him. I continue to behold him because of who he is. Also, this word of life is described as something our hands have touched, actually touched. Again, the context is important here. He emphasizes his proclamation rests on his experience of not only seeing, but also of touched with his own hands. Matter of fact, I'm sure that would have been Thomas's testimony. I touched the Savior. And it's John's as well. He proclaims a message, and he wants his hearers to know this message is embodied in a person, Jesus Christ. And I think we need to renew our commitment to preach the gospel, not a caricature of the gospel, but the historical Christ, the Christ of the Bible, the Christ of church history. That's who we preach. It's not a myth. And we dare not try to modernize Christ or the gospel. If we do, we divorce it from history. And do you know what happens when we do that? The character of the gospel's changed, and we make another gospel. And John's really concerned about that. It's one of the purposes in writing. I'm convinced that through all of eternity we'll be singing. We have, there's a worship song we sing sometimes, and that is, Your name's the only name that matters to me. And then one day when all the saints in glory will gather together and we'll sing that name. Because it's the only name that matters. The name of Jesus. The pre-existent one. That's what John's trying to hammer home. But this word was also revealed and it's expressed. It's experienced. Now he uses, as we go through this, verse 3, what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. We proclaim it. He uses that word proclaim both in verse 2 and in verse 3. 
Now it's all of our responsibility to proclaim. We're all called to proclaim the gospel. And our proclamation, though, isn't wishful thinking. It's based, again, on historical reality. But it's also experienced in the reality of Christ in our life. And so you could say John is declaring objective truth, first of all. But then he also wants them to realize their experience of living out Christ is one way we proclaim Christ. And so as we look at the objective, the fact that Christ came historically, that John saw him, touched him, the life was manifested, but he also moves now, I guess you could call it, of subjective experiences. These evidences, you could say, are of authentic Christianity. They're an everyday experience. And one of the concerns we could potentially say is, this is kind of a rebuke to maybe contemporary evangelicalism, which divorces a right theology from a Christ-like life. And I fear that there's sad fact there's many churches that are Bible-believing, fundamentalist, evangelical, but they don't know what it is to be like Christ, to live like Christ, to talk like Christ, and to love like Christ. I.e., they got their theology right, like the church in Ephesus, but they forsake their first love. John's concerned about that. And so he talks about this word of life that's come and we've experienced And we continually experience a relationship with Him. And He talks about this everyday experience that is authentic Christianity. Now we need to make another point here because it makes sense to verse 3 and 4. The Gnostics, again, wanted to establish a fellowship or an intellectually elite group. But the contrast is to the apostles who just wanted to proclaim Jesus and called to faith those who would believe in Him. They were not an elitist group. They were not some secret society or secret knowledge of a select few. And here's kind of where John's going. Not only is what John has said the basis of what is Christian doctrine about the historical Christ, but it's also the basis of authentic Christianity and the grounds for fellowship and unity. He goes on to say this, We proclaim to you also that which you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship was with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is for those who are authentically Christian. Those who hold to the biblical doctrine of who Christ is and what He's done. And what John is saying here is that the fellowship with one another is only derived from a fellowship with the Father and with His Son. In other words, we don't, we're not unified. We can't have fellowship around tradition. We can share traditions, but it's not the basis of our fellowship. It's not even the common experiences if they're divorced from the reality of who Christ is. And so this word is expressed, it's revealed, you could say, in fellowship. And so we ought not to add grounds of fellowship. Fellowship is something deeper. It's more spiritual than eating together or playing a game together. It's about what we share. It's about what we celebrate together. And that is the pre-existent one in which we've been called into a relationship with. By his death and resurrection. resurrection. That's why communion is so rich. Because we share what really matters together. But he adds a second, I guess you could call it, subjective experience that authenticates Christianity. It's not just fellowship, but it's joy. And maybe you've met someone who said, man, there's something in your life that's different. Or maybe you've seen in someone's life, maybe when you were coming to Christ, you saw someone said, man, there's something in their life, there's this deep-seated joy. What do you got? And their answer is, well, 
Jesus. So without Jesus, there's no joy. Joy. And while fellowship might be an answer to spiritual loneliness, joy is an answer to spiritual emptiness. Because a life that's real, a life that's based on the authentic historical facts of Christianity, a life that's, that's built itself on Christ as God's Son coming in the flesh, authenticated by the fellowship among God's people who daily experience that fellowship with God that permeates and plays itself out in a life of joy. It's one of the evidences, I guess you could say, of a Christian. They have a joy. It's not only those who've experienced and based their life on a historical Christ, but it's those who have the Christ within them, the hope of glory, living out day in and day out, that permeate a joy. Verse 4, and these things we write, why? So your joy may be complete. So you'd live an overcoming life, an assured life, and the, the result of that would be joy in your life. In other words, I think it's a contradiction to, to be a sourpuss Christian. You know, walk around like you eat lemons all day. That's not biblical. I mean, we're called to live with this deep-seated joy. Not that we're giddy happy all the time, but we've anchored our life in Christ. We know where we're going for all of eternity. This life's not our home, so whatever curveballs we receive in this life, it doesn't affect that deep-seated joy we have in Jesus Christ. Praise God we stand on the historical fact of who Christ is. But let's also never lose the authenticity of the experiential nature of Christianity that is both fellowship with one another and is in Christ and the joy that it brings, that daily goal we need to make to grow closer to Jesus. Because when that happens, that joy, that deep abiding joy just continues to splash over from our life and into others' lives. As I thought about 1 John, I thought, okay, there's, there's two foundational truths we need to grab from these first four verses that will undergird the rest of this uh, letter, but certainly our lives. God's Word points us to these two foundational truths. One, our faith, the true gospel, rests in the pre-existent, incarnate, historical Christ. Now I want to say them again because it's important. Our faith, the true gospel, rests in the pre-existent, incarnate, historical Christ. That's what our faith rests in. Everything in Christianity rests on who Christ is. Matter of fact, Jesus said to his hearers in John 8, If you do not believe who I claim to be, you'll die in your sins. Pretty straightforward. Our faith rests. The true gospel rests in the pre-existent, incarnate, historical Christ. And number two, the foundation of all true fellowship and abiding joy is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you miss Jesus, you miss it all. The foundation of all true fellowship, abiding joy, is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, I think, is often in my words to Angela. Maybe it's similar to your words you write to your child. As they launch out on their own, you remind them, base your life on Christ. Follow Him. Join in with the fellowship of the saints. You're going to experience a deep and abiding joy and experience the purpose. And so let's follow John's letter to us. And what he calls us to, and what God would want us to experience in this Christian life, is that you and I would live an overcoming life. A life with great assurance. Let's pray.
Lord, I'm excited about this book. I, I continually read it and find it to be balm for my soul, gas for my engine, and a focus, Lord, that brings me back to the only name that matters to me. And I would pray the same for my brothers and sister. I pray, God, as we go through this study, you take us to a new place in our life. Would we love you better when we're done with our study than when we began it? Would we love other people better? Lord, would we, maybe even for the first time, really have that sense that we have an overcoming life, that we are overcomers in you? And Lord, please bring a great assurance that, God, you don't lose those who are yours. We have an assurance of our salvation, an assurance of your great love for us. And so, God, please, by your Spirit, work in us this precious, precious little letter. Help us to receive it as it is from you. Help us to apply it by the power of your Spirit. So, Lord, again, we'd love you better and love others better. And we'll give you the praise for, Lord, all you're going to do in our personal lives and in the lives of us as a church here at Elam as we go through 1 John. We bless your name, Lord. We love you this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen.